He joined Goldsworthy, read ancient and modern history at St. John's College, Oxford, and spent the early part of his career in academia before turning to writing full-time. He's written 22 books to date, including the acclaimed Caesar, Life of a Colossus, as well as 12 other works of non-fiction and 9 works of fiction. In this episode, he discusses his writing career, his research process, and his three upcoming books, including a volume on the world of Philip II of Macedon and Alexander the Great. Thank you so much for joining us. You have written 22 books, I believe, and you have three more in the works. Um, and I hope to touch on all of these, but I wanted to start by asking you about your forthcoming book about Philip II of Macedon and Alexander the Great. Why Philip and Alexander? What what drew you to them? Um, simple answer is actually the publishers asked me, would I do that? Mm-hmm. And whereas I wouldn't have written a book on Alexander because there are just so many the idea of doing Philip, his father as well, who, who tends to get neglected, and it's it's a little bit like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, partly through Shakespeare, partly through old movies. Mark Antony's young, Caesar's old, and it's the same with Philip. Philip appears in Alexander's story as the drunken old man who collapses when he can't try to attack his son when he's angry with him at a wedding feast, and you know the man who can't cross the floor wants to conquer Asia, all this sort of stuff. But you have to remember Philip was only in his early 20s when he becomes king. Macedonia is on the verge of being dismembered by rivals from outside. And he turns that kingdom around to the point where it can go off under Alexander and conquer the Persian Empire in a big chunk of the known world. So it's it's a good story that people don't really know. So the thought of doing the two together, you go, yeah, okay, I could do that. There's something new there, rather than just simply doing the same old thing. And when you look at anything, closely, um, you always start to see, well, hang on a minute, why have people told it that way? Um, and this is really, you know, hopefully I'm drawing a lot on the, the recent scholarship, which has been a lot about Macedonia, but um, trying to make that accessible to people, but also then trying to go and say, well, actually, does some of this make sense? Should we, are, should we stand back and ask some very basic, simple questions that maybe, you know, <laughs> cause some of the wonderful theories that are very nice to look a bit shaky? There are a lot of myths surrounding Philip and Alexander, I guess, as there are with any figures um, from the ancient world. Um, But how have you gone about kind of like tackling these myths or deconstructing them and replacing them with the so-called real history, I guess? Well, I think it's one of those things that sort of help you um, through doing all the other books. And, you know, I've been studying ancient history informally since I was a kid, but then since, uh, since I was a student, so most of my adult life. And you know, it's always the difficult thing to explain to people who don't look at the ancient world of how little we really know, how many huge gaps there are in the sources, all the problems where, um, you know, maybe a source once exists, but it hasn't survived, the tiny, tiny fraction we've got of what was once there, and then how partial everything is. So, you know, when you start looking at the Greek world, which, you know, on the whole, I'm a Romanist, but I've always had an interest. And you start thinking, well, you know, all these things people say about Greek culture and Greek ideas, it's basically what aristocratic men in Athens said, because they're the only ones who write. And they overwhelmingly influence our idea of what typical Greeks thought. And then you have to start asking all sorts of other questions. And of course, the Macedonians are not proper Greeks, let alone Athenians. So they're viewed differently, and you have to try and come in. But... Even so, I was surprised, you know, I'm sort of half aware, but it'd been a while since I'd really done anything on this era. I was surprised at just how little there really is, not just for Philip, but for Alexander, because when you think the bulk of the main sources are written in the Roman period, and they've had centuries to develop the narrative of how it should be. And whilst there have been, you know, since the 19th century, it's dying out a little bit, but there's still this tradition of trying to sort of work our way back, mine through the sources and find the original source. It doesn't really work. It's all based on conjecture, saying this is the sort of thing that somebody would have said. Um, And I've tried to be honest, as I always do, with with the books and tell people what we don't know. And the many areas where we're guessing, the many things where we're probably never going to know, rather than simply presenting, well, this is my best guess. And... The worst thing I think you can possibly do in this sort of popular book is try and imagine an Alexander or a Philip, your own character you create. And then when there's a gap, you just say, well, that's the sort of thing they would have done and just assume they did. So 
I suspect I'm going to get reviews where people are saying, well, you know, what's left of the story? Because he's just saying we can't believe any of this or there are problems. But that to me seems a lot more honest and more if history is going to be useful, then you have to be honest. You have to try and get to the truth and admit all the cases where we just don't know. Um, among those things that we don't know, could you give a couple of examples? What kinds of kinds of things do you, I guess, wish you knew about Philip and Alexander? We know very little about either of them as, as human beings, as people. Um, you know, if you read about Alexander, obviously, you know, his sex life, did he have a long-term affair with Hephaestion? Um, did he have an affair with the eunuch? Um, this sort of thing, you know, was he bisexual? This sort of thing. It, it feeds into a lot of modern interests and people talk about it. But when you look at the ancient sources, you're dealing with half a dozen passages at best that say anything, none of them terribly reliable. And, you know, you have to admit, we don't really know. <laughs> you know, we don't know what was important to him. We don't know why he did a lot of these things. It's very hard to say, ultimately, why did Philip plan to attack Persia and why did Alexander actually do it? You know, they're claiming they're avenging the Persian invasion over 150 years ago, you know, which, while in the ancient world that carried a bit of weight, it seems a bit thin <laughs> to us for such a, a major problem. And what did Alexander want? You know, what was he going to do in the long run? He's, he's so young when he dies. Um, we don't know much about the personality, but I think that it's, it's some of the other gaps that are really frustrating because you look at someone like Olympias, you know, it's Alexander's mother, one of Philip's wives. She's clearly hugely influential. The ancient sources, several of them imply maybe she arranged Philip's murder. She's certainly in the years after Alexander's death. You know, this was a woman who led armies and did have other people killed. And you have, as a lot of the, the recent work has shown, Plenty of men do that, and they don't get the same criticism, the same stick that Olympias does. But the problem is, whilst you can sort of try and say, well, let's try and see it from her point of view, we don't get her voice. It's not there. You know, there are a couple of inscriptions. There are quotes she's supposed to have said. Um, she was clearly hugely influential for Alexander, though he doesn't see her after he sets out from Persia. You know, they're writing letters all the time, but he never goes home, never sees her again. Um, Clearly, there was some importance with Philip. You know, he's, she's a major factor politically and psychologically, but it's missing. You could see a shadow, and that's all of what was there. And it's the same with, you know, any any of the other relationships. Why does does Alexander suddenly marry Roxanne, this you know, daughter of a comparatively obscure local dynast, in um, later on, halfway through his Asian campaigns, when, as far as we can tell, she can't speak Greek. You know, it's supposed to be this love match in some stories, and then people have tried to construct all sorts of politics about it. But one of the other dangers is that sometimes we forget these are just flesh and blood human beings. And in the way that, you know, look how much contemporary news reporting is dominated by politicians' personalities or perceived personalities, um, and how many quirky decisions and things seem to happen. That may be happening in the ancient world, but it's very hard to tell where there's something rational calculation behind it or whether this is just something that somebody decides to do because for both Philip and Alexander they have so much success that for these people to have stayed grounded and not just thought yeah I can do pretty much anything I want um, you know, is unlikely but again you're getting into the speculation you're starting to say well this is what I think they were like and that's you can't take that too far because we just don't know the, the, the real people behind this you can say quite a bit about what they did something about how they did it, but why and what it meant to them, the, the bits that are the very human aspects are just, just gone, they're, they're unreachable. You mentioned, so for example, like Olympias and Roxanne, we've seen a lot of trying to uncover the lives of, of women um, throughout history. How do you go about sort of approaching uh, these these people without too much of a, a modern gaze? It, it again comes back to honesty, and you have to admit in the first place, the ancient sources say very, very little about them. Um, you know, I wrote in the past about, about Cleopatra, and you often get modern authors, particularly those sort of writing the more popular books, complaining, you know, isn't it terrible we only hear about her when she's involved with a famous Roman, and there's very little about the rest of her life. But that's the nature of the sources. They're written by Romans who are interested in the big politics, the big events, and Rome was the dominant power. So whilst she's probably a, a more intelligent, more interesting person, than, than, Alex, uh, than, sorry, than, than Anthony, certainly in perhaps, you know, and other, many of the others, we just can't get to them. We never hear their own words. But that's, it's particularly true of the royal women, 
where we know they're important. You know, we, we know they're doing a lot. We know they're there. Though, again, it's, it's very hard to judge what was court life, court life like in the Macedonian court. You know, how much, again, it comes back to, well, the Greeks thought this about women. Where, you know, Athenians were very restrictive with noble women. They didn't have much of a public life. Um, but that doesn't mean that's the same in other cities, let alone in Macedonia. Um, and another problem is reading back. We know all the things that are going to happen, and we know that in the years after Alexander's death, quite a few royal women uh, play very prominent, very open roles. Now, is that new, or is that something that actually they've done before for other kings who are less famous and about whom we know very little? Um, so it's difficult, but it, it's more generally true. I mean, what did all this mean to your average Macedonian soldier who was dragged off around there, or to his family left at home? You know, there, there's that quite interesting bit where after his first campaign in Asia, Alexander sends all the recently married men home for a sort of few months furlough. Um, and that sort of thing is quite rare in ancient armies. And his, his stated reason, according to the sources, is he wants them to breed the next generation of Macedonian soldiers. So you know, it's not a, a sort of sympathetic thing or an emotional thing. It's this pragmatic population generation, and particularly military manpower. But again, all of these people, in the same way the soldiers we hear about acquire large numbers of local women that are sometimes classed as wives, sometimes not, that produce children, that Alexander later takes from the families because he says, well, you know, they can't be sent home, they're not going to have much of a life in Macedonia, and trains them to speak Greek and to, to serve as Macedonian soldiers, or at least the boys. What did all this mean to all these people? It, it's, you hear the great names, you hear the great events, and even the people close around them, including the women, are very shadowy figures. Um, even more than the, the main protagonists, and it, it's, it's hard enough with them. But it's always worth reminding ourselves of the impact this has on everybody else. You know, the fact when Alexander goes off charging around the world, lots of other people are caught up in this, whether they like it or not. And of course, eventually his, his army will refuse to go any further in India, and that will sort of bring an end to the campaigns. But it, it's so it's trying to, I think, with all of these people, all these different groups, all these individuals, you try and think a little about the situation you try and express the possibilities but you make it very clear those are possibilities this is this might be how these were acting based on what they do but you can't just fill it in if you want to fill it in you've got to write a novel basically and do it that way where you can invent your characters and you've got to sort of put in the detail yeah we'll, we'll come back to the subject of the novel later um but i wanted to ask you about with, with these more i guess ordinary people how is it how is it different trying to reconstruct their lives and like to what extent can we re rely on the sources we do have to to tell us about them very little i mean you you hope that sometimes the anecdotes you get there isn't really a vested interest in distorting them for the, from the point of view of the author when you hear a little bit about how a soldier behaves or how a woman behaves or this sort of thing but the more prominent somebody becomes, the more likely that there's some quite heavy propaganda involved in how they're, not just what they say and do, but how they are depicted. So, you know, it is, it is striking that um, when women appear publicly, politically, you know, it really bothers not just Greek, but Roman authors later on. And, you know, you've only got to look at Curtius or someone like that who's writing under the, the Principate, and quite clearly, as people have pointed out for generations, there's there's an influence of imperial court politics in his day, as he perceived it, in how he sees the Macedonians, and suspicion of slaves, freedmen, women, all the groups that the Roman aristocracy didn't care for if they started having a voice in politics appears there. Did it also reflect Macedonian opinion? Possibly, but hard to say. Um, mostly it's a question of asking questions rather than finding answers, because in the end, we don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard enough when you come to the Roman period and the, the Principate where you've got a lot more evidence about the army and ordinary soldiers. You know, you've got tombstones, you've got some records on writing tablets, papyri, that's the thing that gives you glimpses, but it's only glimpses um, compared to, say, well, basically from the Revolutionary War onwards and the, the, the French Revolution, when suddenly far more people are literate and far more people at lower levels start writing and you have their letters and their diaries and their their autobiographies later on and their accounts. When you read history of that period, you can't help feeling jealous because it just isn't there for the ancient world. Not because there weren't all these stories, not because these people weren't living their own lives. It's just that 
they didn't tell us about it, or if they did, it hasn't survived. I mean, the you know the um, the papyri of the writing tablets often give these, these tantalising glimpses of the sort of the mundane and the ordinary, but they're never more than that. Um, so, again, I, I think if you're writing history responsibly, you have to keep reminding everybody, look, these people are there. You know, this isn't just about one or two major leaders, um, but while you're asking that and while you're looking at some of the practical point of view, so you can start to think about, well, you know, just how far have these soldiers marched, how far have they traveled, what's this going to do to them? Um, beyond that, um, you can't, although one thing I, I did want to do that, again, I suspect I may get some stick from in the book, is that I've emphasized just how much time Philip and Alexander spent on campaign, in army camps, and fighting. And it is staggeringly high, even compared to people like Julius Caesar later on, who sort of has a you know, focused military career. But generally speaking, your average Roman was often at home you know, as much as, as at war with the army. But these people, it's very repetitive. I mean, you end up writing almost identical accounts of they come into a tribal area, the people don't show them sufficient respect, so they attack all these walled villages, sack the places, some surrender, some get massacred, other groups capitulate out of fear, others flee, others fight. Again and again and again, in different places with different rather unfamiliar names. And that's just as true of Philip fighting in the Balkans as it is with Alexander. But that was the experience of these people. You know, Philip and Alexander didn't have a lot of leisure time to sit at home thinking about politics and policy and how they presented themselves. All the things that as modern historians we tend to have an interest in. Most of their time they are traveling and they are fighting and they are living out in all weathers. And again, you know, perhaps you could just say that in a few lines, but I think it's so easy to forget. People easily switch from the bits that, well, that sounds a bit boring, and it is. Um, uh, it was obviously terribly frightening and exciting for those involved, but in terms of an account, it's not dramatic. But it's you have to try and spend almost equal time on the years where we would consider it's actually quite dull, because that was the life of these people and that was the experience of these people. So that's the, the reasoning anyway. I guess to, to consider the experiences of, for example, the people massacred by Alexander, I mean, he did lots of horrible things, um, which either people say sometimes kind of like romanticize or they say oh we don't know enough about about the experiences of these i guess victims so like they don't care um how have you tried to deal with deal with that sort of problem part of it is simply repeating and trying to give you know these are the numbers in the sources that are often appallingly high and yes they're probably exaggerated to add to the glory the odds are nobody bothered to count the corpses um you know it's rather like Pliny's comment about caesar in gaul massacres of that or kills a million people and enslaves a million more. Well, the million enslaved, there might be some basis to that because the Romans are going to be keeping account books because this is valuable property, but who's going to bother counting the number of dead, particularly on that scale? Um, it's hard. I mean, you do get a little bit desensitized reading it. Um, there are a few friends that some of the grave finds from um, Chironea, where you get from the bone finds, it's one of those things where you start to remember just how unpleasant this was. Because again, all these people are going to be killed by hand. You know, this is not done from a distance. They're not shot. They're, um, they are hacked down. Um, and there are bone finds where one, one poor man seems to have had most of the front of his face sliced off. Um, again, they're partly, you know, they're, they're fragmentary, the, the, the full remains have not been fully analysed, but it gives you a glimpse. I remember spending, while I was doing my doctorate, days in the Bodleian looking through um, the finds from 14th century battle in Scandinavia, Wisby, where you just have, I think it's over a thousand um, skeletons they found, and you're looking at all these bones with traces of wounds, and it, it's, it really is pretty grim. Um, because you have to keep reminding yourself these aren't just objects, these aren't just artifacts. Study these were people. Um, with Alexander, I, I think there is no. You, you should not shy away from the fact that what he did meant the deaths of a huge number of people and the enslavement of many more. Um, that's what it's about. And compared to the Romans, you can't see a longer-term impact of this in many areas, particularly in India, where the Macedonian presence pretty much retreats within a generation. Um, so you can't even have that sort of the old um, 
the old faithful, oh, well, you know, it may get brought peace and stability in the long run, because it clearly didn't, um, or certainly not because of what he did. Um, there are little fragments. I mean, you sometimes get that sense. On In the main, the ancient sources are pretty pragmatic about it all, because let's face it, the Romans happily talked about massacre on this scale. And as long as you didn't break faith or do it in a way that was, um, you know, considered somehow wrong, then fine. Yeah, if they were enemies, they had it coming. Um, you get hints of that in particularly the later campaigns. And um, there's one group of Indian mercenaries where uh, Alexander possibly massacred them after they'd surrendered and after he'd promised them safe treatment and being allowed to go free. And then there's another tradition, oh, well, they were about to break out and start attacking him. So it could have been a ghastly mistake. It could have been a deliberate atrocity on his part. But it's interesting that in some of the, um, the more... Uh, rhetorical sources, the ones with more decoration. You have the story of these men's wives standing behind them, and then when the husbands die, seizing their weapons and fighting to the last. And, and it's presented in a way that is clearly heroic, even though these are the ones fighting against the Macedonians. Um, that's rare. On the whole, it's just Alexander's men storm the town and they kill everybody. Um, and you might get the numbers, and there's no sort of questioning of was this a good idea or not. Um, so again, I'm not, I try as an author to be, to make my own personality as anonymous as possible. I don't like beating people over the head with, with my ideas or telling them what to think. Um, it should be obvious when you keep telling people, look, and he goes here and tens of thousands of people die, others are enslaved, does the same thing in the next one and the next one, and the next one. Even when the army doesn't massacre people, if the army comes in, as they often do, ravage the fields, confiscate all the cattle they can find, then come winter, a lot of those people are probably starving anyway. Or the army is introducing diseases that haven't come to the area before. You know, The impact of this is going to be much more widely felt than simply the deaths in battle or in fighting. I think it's just repeating this and trying to be honest about, well, this is what you know, the impact seems to have been. You know, I don't think you need to keep telling people, and isn't this terrible? Because surely it should be obvious that this is terrible. Um, there, there are some odd bits, though. It, it's it's probably just a reflection, but it, it, you notice it in a lot of the sources as well. A lot of people will say that Alexander became more savage and worse in his behavior when he reached was approaching well, Afghanistan and India. Um, I'm not sure that's true. When you look back to what he and Philip have been doing for decades, it seems to be just more of the same. And part of me wonders, because I've felt it as well, that probably by chance or because I happen to be British, I've grown up knowing more people of Indian origin or Indian birth who've moved here. And therefore, it seems worse that Alexander is massacring the distant ancestors of people I know than, you know, I don't particularly know any Thracians or Illyrians very well. So it's just a bit more distant. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. But it's how the human mind works sometimes. Um, but I would say whilst Alexander's army is, is sort of bigger and very efficient by the time it gets there, they've actually been behaving just as badly everywhere they've gone. And, and Philip had done the same thing before. And they are utterly ruthless whenever they think it's to their advantage, um, which is fairly common for the ancient world. But the Macedonians are very good at it, um, or very bad at it, depending on how you look at it. But they're, they're very efficient, perhaps put it that way. Um, with that, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your research process. Like, what does that look like and how do you go about kind of engaging with sources and then doing the actual writing? Well, it's, it's always, you, you try, try with a book to do at least six months or so, just getting back into that subject and period. Because it's been a while since I've worked on something where you know, my own academic research was, was building up to that. Some of the early books, like the one on the Punic Wars and things, that built-on work I'd been doing when I, I had a, a research fellowship in Cardiff um, and sort of presented in a more popular way academic ideas that I've been developing. But it's always a question of going back to an era, a subject. Um, when you're writing a book, you have to live with that, and it's very hard to take on other things. And whilst naively, when I, I ended up giving up teaching and starting writing, I sort of had this idea, well, I will keep up to date with everything that's going on in the field, and I will try and sort of read all the journals as they come out, or at least you know, things relevant to me. It's, it's simply impossible to do, and you can't, or my mind anyway, can't, can't cope with too many different topics at the same time. 
So it's a question of plunging into it, immersing yourself in that period. I mean, uh, the next book is on Justinian, so I'm going into the 6th century AD, which is, is frighteningly modern for me, and I haven't really looked at that for quite a few years. So it'll be, it'll be fun to do, um, but I need to sort of get back into that way of thinking, just reminding myself, I find that every time you read a, an ancient source, no matter how familiar it is, something new will jump out at you. Um, so when you haven't looked at it for a long time, it's, it's even more the case that sometimes, a, a, you've got to refresh your memory, but also coming fresh to it sometimes gives you hopefully new insights, just questions. And having looked at something else, often there's a way of, well, you know, when I was thinking about that, that occurred to me, does that work here? So usually it's about six months or so of just getting back into the subject. And then by that time, I start to get a rough plan in my mind of how the book will will pan out, um, what sort of space is going to come to each topic, how I'm going to tell it. You know, it's obviously easier with a biography or, or one that's based around a few individuals because basically they're born, they do stuff, and they die. So you've got the chronology there, the pattern there. Um, something more thematic, you have to weigh it in a different way. Um, and after that, I'll, I'll write and research each chapter as I go along. So I'll spend a couple of weeks really going back often to things I've already read, but just checking again as the chapter takes shape. And then books tend to develop a little bit as you're writing them. None of them ever turn out exactly as I planned um, because it's just, I think, just the way writing certainly is for me. Um, and so then over the course of, if it's a non-fiction book, it'll be over two or three years, probably depending on the, the topic and the length. You gradually put it together, and then in the end you go back and tie it all. I usually find I have to go back and rewrite the first few chapters because they're always roughest. It's quite hard to start and get a sense of the book. Um, and you've got to remember at every stage as well that this is not, in the end, the purpose of this is not you sitting in a room on your own writing and thinking about this. It's communication. It's about people picking it up and reading it. And for me, it's whilst you know, I hope everything I do is academically respectable, I hope that there is something new, even if they're small ideas, of interest to those who work on the field. Ultimately, I'd starve if I just relied on writing for them. And I have to write for anyone who's sufficiently interested to pick the book up in the first place and explain to them and work on the basis that they may have no prior knowledge at all. Um, which is actually harder for the Greek world than it is for the Roman era, because there's just a bit more about the Romans in, in on TV, in popular culture, in in the movies. You know, it, it's we get more about them. Even even Shakespeare, it's it's just that there's an element where people will know some of the names, they'll know a bit more, they'll know some of the places. Whereas, um, you know, you start talking about the Locrians or you know even Thebes and things like that, and people are often you have to <laughs> have to make sure you've got a map handy so they know where it is. So it's about drip feeding the information in so that they know everything they need to know to follow what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really the style. On that note, you spent quite a bit of time in academia before you started um, writing full time. Uh, what was it? What was it kind of like to make that change? Um, it sort of happened, really. I mean, it was one of those things I'd always I'd always hoped to write, but I'd always thought that the only way you could make a living writing was writing fiction. Um, because I didn't know of anybody who wrote ancient history sort of professionally and could get away with it. And, um, and it was simply, I was going, you know, it's, it's the story of most young academics. You do your doctorate, you, you are convinced for those three years that the subject you're studying is the most important thing in the world and that the world is crying out for more research on this subject because if you didn't think like that, you wouldn't care enough to do it in the first place and it wouldn't be a good thesis. Um, and then gradually reality hits and you realize that, you know, yeah, it's interesting to you, but there are lots of other things out there. Um, I enjoyed teaching and that was fun, but I was like a lot of, of, of people at that stage of the career, you go from a short term contract here, you do a bit of part time work there, you go from one job to another, there's very little stability. And around about that time, I got asked to write a coffee table book on Roman warfare. Um, and that was an incredible change from the, the only thing I'd written before was my thesis. And that's 100,000 words cramming as much as you can possibly get in, covering yourself because at your viva, you think your examiners are going to, you know, you want to, they might ask you absolutely anything. So you've put in every reference you can find, you've thought of everything, you've tried to sort of cover your tracks in every way. 
and you're also writing for people who know a lot already, otherwise they wouldn't be examining you. So you want to impress them, but you're not, you're communicating to a very narrow audience. Suddenly doing a coffee table book, I got 40,000 words to cover 2,000 years of Roman military history. You know, there were, it was in the series, I think there were three or four volumes just on the Second World War, but you know, the ancient stuff, it was just pack it all in. And to cram something down to just 40,000 words and still cover something in reasonable depth and with a few ideas meant I had to write it about three or four times just to get used to that idea of thinking in a different way. And it's about partly about learning to not to assume that the audience is already interested and will read this anyway because they have to um, and they'll understand everything you say. So again, it was that that early communication that you, you it would twig eventually. This is basically teaching, but to a different different audience. Um, but when I'd written that, the publisher asked me to write another book, and it, it reached the point where. I could keep on doing the part-time stuff in the hope that eventually I'd get permanent posts somewhere. But frankly, particularly in those days, having a, a doctorate on a military topic in the ancient world was pretty much like declaring on your CV that you wanted to invade Poland. You know, it, it was this sort of assumption that if you studied war, you must think war was great. Um, and departments weren't desperately keen on recruiting people of that sort. Weirdly, though, whenever you did a course on military history, the students signed up for it in great, great numbers. Um, but um, I just got to the point where I thought, well, let's try writing, because writing is tremendous fun. And it, for me anyway, it brings out, there's that freedom. It's, it's a lot of the things that made me get interested in history in the first place. And once you start to write for a popular audience, you can address the really big questions. You know, if I tried to write an academically respectable, detailed biography, say, of Julius Caesar, it would take me all my working life to do that. It would end up with some multi-volume tome that three people and a dog would read at some point. Um, but it would cover everything and all the different controversies in great detail, and all the little question marks, all the problems with sources, with prosopography, all of these things, you'd do that. Instead, I write something in three years that I know isn't going to be the final word on the subject. It's not the definitive, but it is hopefully useful, it's readable, it gets more people interested, and it, at heart it's, it's, it's respectable. So it was a wrench in some way, and I, I still miss the teaching, but there's a lot of other aspects of academic life where you, you sit through these interminable administrative meetings where um, one thing historians in particular can do is talk and discuss things. You know, we're good at that. So for hours we would debate a subject and decide that actually we wouldn't make a decision on this so the department would consider it again next time. You know, you sort of felt your life ebbing away as you had these pointless discussions that never actually reached any conclusion. Marking is not the greatest fun in the world either. Um, so although, I don't know, it's one of those things I think it maybe would have been nice to have done a couple of more years teaching before I, I went to writing, but actually... The writing is so much fun, and I'm still staggered that I've got away with it um, and that people keep paying me to do it, um, that it's it's a life I'd recommend to anybody, as long as you don't mind being working on your own, because obviously that's, that's what you've got to do. But I still feel in a sense I'm doing the same sort of thing. I'm just communicating to a, a wider audience, and I hope some of the people who read my stuff will go on either to read the really heavy stuff or they'll go on and study history or ancient history. Because one of the dangers of university life is you forget that people have to get interested in the first place, otherwise they're not going to come to study. And if that happens, where do they, you know what happens to the department? So um, I hope what I'm doing is complementary to that sort of thing. Uh, but it's, it's a change in a way. It's rather like going back to being a graduate student because you're basically writing one thesis after another. Um, you know, and then you move on to the next topic. So, um, but, uh, but saying I'd written 22 was quite scary. I wasn't sure, I didn't realise it was that many. <laughs> on the subject of being a student, uh, you've read Ancient and Modern History at St John's, Oxford, and um, you also have taught a bit of modern history, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, and you've written a couple of modern novels, which, um, again, we'll come back to in a moment. But I wanted to ask you, sort of, what, is it, what has it been like to live in both the ancient and the modern worlds? Well, as I say, it's, it's, I think it's good for you as a historian. I mean, the, when I 
I was a student, you either read ancient and modern or you read greats. There was no, you know, I think now there's ancient history and archaeology and there's a few others where you could basically, if that had existed then, I probably would have done that. Um, but I'm glad I did the modern history because the styles of teaching of the modern history tutors compared to the ancient history ones was so different because again, the ancient history ones were, were mainly greats. You know, there were, I think at St. John's, there were two of us doing ancient and modern in that year out of 10 people doing history of all sorts. And that was the first time they'd ever done that. And they didn't repeat the experiment for quite a few years. They usually only have one. You know, there was something like 30 people in a year doing ancient and modern history in those over the whole university. Um, and you know, you'd get to meet the ones who did similar courses to you, but others you'd only ever see at, at exams at the end. Um, but greats was marvelous. That focus on detail, on the text, on the real minutiae, the the small stuff, was interesting because you also got the modern historians who were broad sweep and who looked at the big picture. And you know, even the medievalists had so much more information to go on for any subject than we had. So it was quite nice to do both. I mean, I, I don't think I ever got much more modern in the 16th century as an undergraduate. And wherever possible, I did did medieval history or something, so I thought, well, I've got Latin, might as well make use of this. Um, and it, it was fun. I mean, I, I, I remember enjoying it. The, the, the scary thing is, and I think everybody finds this, is how little you remember as the years pass of, of courses you do, um, in the same way that you know, half the linguists I've known end up, if they don't practice it, not speaking the languages they studied terribly well, because they just don't do it. Um, so it was a good, it was a good mixture Greats would have meant far more literary stuff, and I've never been interested in the texts as texts. They're always sources, as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, it's I, I quite like reading Ovid and Virgil and this sort of thing when I was working on Augustus, but frankly, just studying them as poems is not my cup of tea. So it was very good training, I think, and I think doing that afterwards, I, I just. I find history interesting, and you know, if I visit a place or if I stumble across a book on something it's quite hard to stop myself from going off at a tangent and just reading loads of things about that because it's it's exciting. You know, there are just interesting things about people in all sorts of different cultures, all sorts of different eras. Um, there are some I've read more about because I've got a particular interest and I, I you know, I, I taught a course on the Second World War, point, largely a military history course, because I think for any field, it's always good to have the perspective of what people are doing in other periods on a similar theme and the sort of information they have and the way they analyze things. At the very least, it expands your, your sense of the sort of range of possibilities. You know, there are, as we talked about before, there are so many things in the ancient world we can never know and probably will never know. And it's tempting just to think of, well, you know, this basically, this could have happened, this could have happened, that could have happened. But the more broadly you look at the world's history, you start to realize, well, lots of people have just thought in a completely different way, might do something that makes no apparent sense to us, but it was perfectly logical to them. Um, so it's, it's interesting looking at um, more recent eras. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's always valuable not to say that the Roman experience was similar to 19th, 20th century European empires. But if you look at those a bit, you again get this sense of the range of possibilities and the sort of interactions that can occur that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and it's much easier then to go back to the, the Roman world where you know, it's, it's all less politically charged because people on the whole don't care quite so much about things that happened that long ago um, and feel less direct connection with those involved. So I think it's very useful, and it's also it's a good reminder. I mean, the, the the novels I wrote were set in sort of Regency Napoleonic era, and the wealth of information that not only has been available for a long time, but keeps on getting discovered for that era, particularly from the military point of view. You know, it's, it's where you can start to study people from the lower levels of society, at least in that military context. Um, because they wrote something down and they told their stories. And yes, there are all sorts of problems with interpreting that, but at least you've got something to go on. And it's a reminder of what we've lost about the ancient world. So I think all of those are very useful, um, but partly it's just, you know, I'm a bit of a butterfly and I'll just, just go off and, <laughs> and read anything. And you could, um, as I say, a place or an idea or simply you know, even seeing a movie and you think, oh, I wonder what really happened because I know that's Hollywood and it's going to be nonsense. But what's the real story? The real story is usually more interesting. So 
you know, I've read a lot about um, the American Revolution since I, I was doing some lecturing in Virginia a few years back, and I thought I had a couple of days spare, so I went down to Colonial Williamsburg and then Yorktown. And you look at that and think, oh, this is interesting. I've, you know, I remember reading stuff when I was a kid ages ago, but not really very much. And then you get into a wealth of material. So it's, it's dangerous because you can easily get distracted. Um, but I think it's all useful. The more you read, the more you look at other periods, the more you consider other themes, other eras, then it's all got to be useful. It's all got to be good. Um, so you mentioned sort of parallels between the ancient world and potentially uh, 19th, 20th century Europe. Uh, I'm curious about, sort of, do, do you see any parallels between the subjects you write on and like the present day, or do, do you try to avoid that? On the whole, I try to avoid it because in the end, um, I think you've got to understand history on its own terms. And your aim is, yes, you know, whatever we say, none of us are completely impartial. We've all got our, our biases, our assumptions, our interests. But trying to be as dispassionate as you possibly can, look at the evidence and where it leads and what it suggests, trying to understand the period first and foremost. Because if you go to the past with an agenda, with an idea, I wish to prove this case, you will prove it, whether or not it's true. Um, you know, I did quite a lot, especially with, with the book on Caesar, I did quite a lot of talk radio interviews in, in the in the US, mostly over the phone. I'd be sitting in my kitchen at home and chatting to somebody and, and um, you know, and all sorts of weird phone-in programs and this sort of thing. So you've got a very interesting sense because the, the publicist would send you a list of, you know, this is W, whatever it is, from uh, maybe the state or the city. But I'm from South Wales. I don't know what any of these mean. <laughs> you know, it's a, um, and I'd also been warned that many of the hosts had a particular political viewpoint but they didn't tell me what it was. So I always had to work this out as we went along. And you'd get the person asking you, you know, what's the connection between Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas and Julius Caesar? And you'd get somebody asking you some remarkably specific question about Hannibal um, and one of his campaigns in 215 BC or something. You just never knew. But what was quite interesting, particularly with Caesar, is that people on both the left and the right all thought Caesar's career justified their viewpoint. And I've generally found that people can twist the Roman world in particular to mean whatever they want it to mean. Um, so my hope is always try to get to the truth as far as we can, or at least guess it, ask the questions. If then when you've done that, you want to think about parallels, fine. Um, you know, I did this a little bit in the book on the fall of the Roman Empire, largely because I knew that's what people were going to be asking, but I kept it in the introduction, in the conclusion. It doesn't, I think, interfere with the text in any way. And partly, it's merely to say as well that actually a lot of the parallels don't work. You know, you can, um, I was talking to an American friend a couple of weeks ago who was coming out with the, you know, the familiar, all oh, the country's never been as divided as it is now politically and all this sort of thing. Well, I just finished reading a book on Vietnam, um, which, you know, I don't remember. I was too young. I was only a, a child when it ended. But what well, you want division, look at that. Um, so, you know, we have such a short-term memory, and we tend to think our own lives are the most important thing in the world. Um, a lot of parallels that are drawn are simply wrong, um, and they are not useful. On the other hand, you can look at the broader picture, and you can see that the Roman Empire decays and falls eventually, not really through anybody pushing it over, but gradual erosion and rotting. Um, and you can see how something that is not very efficient can survive for a very long time because it's big and it's powerful and there's nobody else out there offering anything that's an alternative. And it's often the differences with the modern world that are more interesting. So if you take the, the parallels of the empires, um, think of the winds of change sweeping through Africa and Asia after the Second World War. There's absolutely nothing like that in the Roman world. When the Roman Empire ends in the West, nobody suddenly decides, hey, I want to be a Spaniard or a Briton. Because this is after three, four hundred years, maybe more. Nobody really remembers anything from beforehand. You know, some tribal groups appear in Britain, but they don't seem to tie up with anything that went before. And everybody's trying to maintain their own little version of the Roman Empire for as long as possible. And that's interesting that there aren't these independence movements. It means that something different has happened. Um, and, you know, there is a great danger. I'm one of my biggest bugbears in in study of history in general, is those who like to label things, you know, to declare this is this is an empire and these are the characteristics of an empire and then rigidly apply their own definition to prove something. You know, I remember 
um, at a conference, somebody telling me that the British Empire wasn't really an empire. Um, and he thought, okay, right, so where does that get us? Because it didn't fit his category of what an empire should be. And it just, I don't think those are how I think labeling tends to oversimplify and confuse rather than actually help. Um, so it's better, again, to try and go back to each individual case and, and not try to draw parallels, not try to judge, just try to understand first and foremost. That's what you've got to do first if you're going to do anything else. Moving on a bit, I want to ask you about your fiction. So you've written two series of novels and you're embarking on a third. Um, how, how did you end up writing fiction? As I said a, a while ago, I assumed that was the only way you could make a living as a writer. I, I, I'd, I'd always rather liked the idea. An uncle of mine wrote some crime novels and just, you know, I found some of my old school books recently and there were these sort of lurid melodramatic essays written when I was about 12 and this sort of thing. Uh, I think there was an instant, I just, I like stories. Um, and partly when I do the nonfiction, I think writing novels has helped because it, it makes you realize you have to present the book as a story. Not that you have to simplify, but you've got to explain. You've got to lead people along. They know why things are happening, why we've got from here to there. Um, but I'd always wanted to write novels because I quite like historical novels. And a while ago, when I was younger, there weren't that many around. Um, there was a great boom about ooh, 15 years or so ago, I suppose, some flood of them, many of which are pretty terrible. But again, we're historians, it's often hard to please us in a good one, because once you know something about the period, you realize whether or not the author knows what he or she's talking about. Um, and some do and some don't. Um, and so I'd, I had a go, when I finished my thesis, I actually wrote what was probably a pretty dreadful novel in a few weeks, because I'd, I'd exhausted all my money studying an extra term to finish. It was January in Britain. I didn't have a job at that stage. I hadn't had the Viva yet. So I had loads of time on my hand and no money, so I thought I'd sit down and write a book. And it was fun. That was the thing that struck me. That there's something about making up your own stories, your own characters, that's just a lot of fun. And as with the history books, I pretty much write the sort of thing I'd like to read. And often it's the sort of thing I'd like to read to relax rather than as, you know, something heavy and thought-provoking, but just a, a little bit of historical tourism, you know, going to a different world and looking at things, having an, you know, an adventure within it. Um, so I had an, and oddly enough, I got a literary agent through a second attempt to write a novel about 15 years ago, um, which she couldn't sell, but she got me far better deal to write the, the season non-fiction book. And, um, again, anybody who does, um, want to have a go at writing in the long run, you do need an agent because it, it makes a lot of difference, um, and gives you the opportunity to write with a bit more time and a bit more leisure and not worrying that, um, you're not going to be able to pay the bills for next week. So then the history took off a bit, but she knew I'd always wanted to write novels. And a few years later came to me and said, look, I think it might be time to have another go. Funnily enough, I'd been about to ask the same thing. And um, I did the, the series that's, that's unfinished so far, and I hope one day to go back to them if I possibly can, six that was set in the Peninsula War era and Regency, and it, it came really from, I'd always had a hobby interest in reading about that that period, and just as I said before, that the sources are so wonderful, all the things we don't get for the ancient world. Um, it was nice to make use of them, and there wasn't really anything else that being, you know, Bernard Cornwall had done his sharp series, and people like Patrick O'Brien done and Forrester before that with Hornblower, there, there was lots of nautical stuff, but there wasn't a lot of simple adventures and then I'd also I wanted something that reflected the society a bit more um, because some of you know it's like sharp it, it, they're great adventures but you couldn't really behave like that in that period that's not the reality um, and I remembered when I was at school being made to read Jane Austen which you should never do to a teenage boy because it's just genetically not there. Um, a few years later, read them as an adult, fabulous. You know, it's fun. Um, she's a great companion on a, a long flight. But at 15, 16, you want more excitement. You know, you want something to happen. And you've got this frustrating fact that there's this massive global war going on in the background of all these stories. And apart from um, somebody turning up with prize money and people having, you know, various naval and army officers, it's never mentioned. So was partly trying to bring that together and then the sort of the slightly serious idea was actually when you look at 
the army officers of that era, the vast majority of them are not wealthy, they're not aristocratic, but they live within these very strict rules of behavior, and they are very much the male counterparts of Austen's heroines, and their lives can just as easily go terribly wrong, not just from battle, but simply through social mistakes. Um, you know, one, one officer gets thrown out of his regiment for hitting another one up when they're a bit drunk after a mess dinner, and this sort of thing. It, it's, you know, you, you had to behave in certain sort of um, rakish ways, but also you had to by strict rules. And I, I thought that was interesting. And to look at a group of these people and sort of try and tell the story of this conflict through their lives. Um, though weirdly with that, you know, it, it grows and you suddenly find um, when you're looking at the memoirs, um, something that's not really been explored. And I, one day, if I ever get the chance, I'll try and do something academic on it. Um, you start coming across accounts where colonels of regiments are killed and their wife is there on the battlefield to sort of cradle them in the last moments. And she's never been mentioned before and isn't mentioned the rest of the time. And you suddenly think, well, how are these women there? And then when you dig a little bit deeper and there's, there's some stuff that's come out, you know, there's a single memoir by a, a, a wife of a soldier that was published. That's it from the Peninsula War compared to probably thousands. It's certainly many hundreds um, of men. But some of those mention that... Um, a couple of the cavalry regiments, the, the wives of their colonels, followed them all the way on campaign. And you occasionally get re references from one of their nephews writes, and Mrs. Colonel is just sketching, and this sort of thing. And you're suddenly seeing that this is a much bigger picture. And to do, again, it's glimpses. It's, it's, it's almost like going back to the ancient world, because there isn't enough to put the whole picture together. But the numbers do suggest that there are probably getting on for a thousand officers' wives, the majority of whom stay near Lisbon or in the safer areas, but a significant number are out there with the army on campaign. There's even an account by a, a French prisoner of war of an English captain riding past and his wife rides behind him on a mule and then comes the Irish maidservant carrying the baby and then another manservant carrying the pet dog. And, the, and it, it's caricatured a little bit to show how crazy these English are, but it's, it's these little glimpses of the bits that aren't, you know, are, are just normally ignored. And the more I looked at it, the more fascinating I found that era. Um, I mean, I, I, whether I will ever have time to write anything more serious on it as, as nonfiction, I don't know. Um, and, you know, maybe people wouldn't want to read that because I'm known for ancient history rather than anything else. But there's, there's a lot more work to do there on those memoirs that I think is only partly being done. And actually, a lot of it is done not so much by academics, but by amateur enthusiasts who do, do a good job. But... There's a lot more could be got from those sources that I don't think people are using. So um, I don't know. I think there's probably a thesis in there at the very least. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. I'd never heard of women following these officers with their babies before. <laughs> Not what you expect. You know, it, it shouldn't be there. And yet, apparently, there they are. Yeah. Um, at least some of them. And, it, and again, you think, you know, they've probably stepped straight out of the pages of a Jane Austen novel. How on earth does someone who normally gets... You know, almost dies of flu when they get caught in a rain shower. Cope with this living in this war zone, but clearly they did. Um, so, uh, but then again, it, it's you could look at it Roman period until the excavations at Vindolanda and the the writing tablet showing that you had the officer's wife and children in the, the headquarters. Sorry, in the the commander's house in the Praetorium, um, and that these you know these women commanders' wives are exchanging birthday invitations and this sort of thing. They've got the normal social life you'd expect anywhere of sort of genteel society in the provinces is going on on the fringe of Roman Britain when the frontiers only just arrived there in the last decade or so. And once that's pointed out, people start to see it everywhere else. But we hadn't really, you know, the, the study of the Roman army had been a Roman army basis, you know, because mostly we've looked at the peacetime Roman army. It was overwhelmingly assuming this was a sort of male-only zone. And it, as soon as you look back, you realize this clearly doesn't make any sense. But... That's what we thought, and nobody was challenging it. Um, you mentioned earlier you used this nice phrase that I liked, um, historical tourism. Uh, could you talk about a bit about that? What is it kind of like trying to paint this world and, um, I guess, specifically engaging with the space of the, the world that doesn't really exist anymore? It, it's very different. I think it's it's useful, and it, it's also, frankly, as a, almost as a mental exercise. I'd recommend any historian to have a go at fiction set in their era, because it makes you think about questions you wouldn't think about otherwise. And 
in many ways, a really good historical novel, and there are some out there, and I'm not putting mine in this sort of category of great literature or anything, but if the author gets the feel for a period, it can give you a sense of that age far quicker than reading nonfiction. You know, it takes a lot longer to, to, to pick up all the little details. And we all have a mental picture of what the people were like, what the age was like, what life was like, that's probably desperately wrong in all sorts of ways. And it's probably been shaped by movies and books and just our own, own assumptions about life. Um, but we all have it there. You know, we might pretend it's not there, but whatever subject we come to, um, and you can, you know, you can tend to assume if you specialize in a particular theme or a group of people or whatever, that they are the most important people in the world at that time, instead of, you know, lots of others going on there doing their own thing. Um, so I think you've got to try, and particularly as a historian writing fiction about the past, you've got to try and make it seem real. But when you come to the Roman world, there's so much we don't know. And my you know, my methodology in the nonfiction has always been to be utterly honest with the audience and say, look, I don't know. There's no evidence. There's no explanation. This is what we, this is how much, this is as far as the evidence goes beyond that. It's guesswork. But obviously in a story, you can't have a character open a door and there's just nothing there. You know, you've got to fill it in. You've got to put the gaps in, which means, again, sometimes it's little things. I found myself writing in one of the Roman novels and I wanted I wanted one of the characters to be riding a mare rather than a, a, a stallion or a gelding. And that made me look at what little evidence there is for the gender of horses used by the Roman army. And it's because it's skeletal evidence, it's, it's generally not clear. The sources don't mention it. One author who did look at it claimed that, no, they're only using stallions. But you look at the size of horse boxes that we think we've identified in Roman army bases and putting three stallions in this small room would not be a good idea for their, their general health. Um, and all I wanted really was basically I wanted the male character so I could use the pronoun he and the horse I could use she and it was just in the paragraph to make it easier. But it made me think about I'd never thought about that before, never considered it at all. Um, and lots of other things you think, well, how would they actually do this? You know, how do you, we know that the Roman army has, like the, the Romans in general and like, um, you know, any record of basilica, they've got the hours of the day that are specified a certain length. You've got 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night. You've got watches that occur. People go on guard duty. But just how is that signaled? How is it um, represented? What sort of life did these people have in one of these forts that have been excavated and studied and often used in a slightly abstract way of what can this tell us about what was the Roman army strategy here? What was the organization of Roman army units? All this sort of thing, rather than as basically a sort of garrison town where a lot of people lived. And what was the relationship between those inside and the civilian settlement around? Um, you end up making up a huge amount of the Roman period. And particularly, I wanted to give a sense of everybody else, you know, the, the indigenous population of, of Northern Britain at that time, and try and suggest it was a bit more complex, that these are individual groupings, you know, what the Romans call tribes might mean something completely different to those who belong to them. They might have no concept at all of themselves as Britons, you know, some collective group. Um, there is very little, very, very little to go on. Um, and it's all told from the, the Roman point of view anyway, or Greco-Roman point of view. So I found myself, again, partly my wandering sort of um, tendency to read about anything, um, there are lots of bits drawn from other cultures that I happen to have read about and I thought, well, that might work. Um, so because these novels were written in a frontier zone and they're adventure stories, basically they're not meant to be anything too serious, I saw them as Westerns. I grew up in the 1970s in Britain and even into the 80s, half the television was basically Westerns or cop shows. That's pretty much what we saw. And I grew up and there were all John Wayne films on every Saturday afternoon. That's as children, we played Cowboys and Indians and the Second World War, basically. Those were our games. So you grew up with all of this. So I have a, a nostalgia for Westerns anyway. So I thought, well, those will be the sort of rules. And we've got our, our main character, who's the marshal, the sheriff, the man on his own, who's got to go and do the right thing. Um, so the Siluris, the group from Hebron, they're, they're basically Apaches, um, which doesn't entirely make sense in a, a culture set in South Wales that didn't have the space of the American Southwest, but it made them a bit different from some of the other groupings because I wanted to suggest that, well, look, these people wouldn't be all the same. They're not just generic barbarians and everybody's boring. They've got lives and ideas of their own and thoughts and 
beliefs and um, so a lot of it is lifted a lot of it is trying to create something that could have happened I hope it's all plausible I hope everything I've done is meant to fill in the gaps so when we have real information I've used it but even there just doing that research and just thinking about a storyline where events are happening over days and weeks and months most of the evidence for that that area area and that era is archaeological archaeologists will date something as early Flavian late Flavian or maybe 90s AD in a story that's not good enough you know you've got to think about well when does the road that later gets called the Stanley when does it actually get built because it's early Trajanic which is you know, when my story is set but what's going on and why and why are these forts there and many of the sort of the it's another reminder that people didn't live their lives along archaeological time where you know often we look at the trends we see the long-term things but everybody's living day to day an hour to hour and, and that's that's how your characters have to operate you know they can't sort of say oh in 20 years time this will be a big village you know it, it, it doesn't um so it makes you again go back and think about a lot of the reasoning people then have as to why settlement patterns like it is, why uh, a fort might be there, what people might be doing, how the politics might work, and suggest that it's probably far more complicated, a lot more is going on, there's a lot more change. So I think it's useful, um, but in the end, I must confess, it's, I mostly do because it's fun. To wrap up, I wanted to ask you about the third book you're you're working on. So after your book about Philip and Alexander and after your, your new novel, uh, you're planning to write about Justinian, which you mentioned earlier. So wh why Justinian? Well, again, I was actually asked to write this. This this is another one. I, I moved publisher with, well, with Hadrian's Wall and Philip and Alexander. Um, and so a new team, and uh, and they keep coming to me with ideas, saying, we'd like you to write about this. And uh, whilst... Obviously, I've got my own ideas and things I want to do as well, which I'll hopefully get around to at some point. It's nice to do something very different for your next book, because if you write two that are the same period or related, they tend to blur into each other. And when you're writing, you might forget the things you haven't told the reader. Um, and also, you don't have the perspective that would be nice to have and should have. So when they said Justinian, my first thought Funnily enough, because they'd actually asked me to write something else first, which then they changed their mind about. And I got used to that idea, um, which was a more general history of um, Rome and the Parthians and the Persians, so Rome and the East, in a sense, um, over the centuries. And that would have been interesting as well. Um, but then they said Justinian, which means that once you think, well, I've got Procopius, so there's, there's very good sources, problematic sources, and obviously the secret history and everything is... Um, you know, has to be used with caution, but nevertheless, you get a, you're giving a source where that's at least suggesting personalities for people. But more than that, the thing that that appealed to me, so the main reason I said yes, is that when I thought about it, I, I first of all checked they didn't just want a biography of Justinian, um, because I didn't particularly want to write that and just stay in Constantinople and fixed around the court. I wanted to look at the wider Mediterranean world. And it just struck me that it would be interesting to look at what the world was like around the Mediterranean in the 6th century. Because when you think you've got Belisarius and Narses and all these people, you've got expeditions sent to North Africa, to Sicily, to Italy, there's presence in Spain, you know, what, trying to look at the Ostrogothic Kingdom, at the Visigoths in Spain, at the Vandals in North Africa, what they're like before the Romans arrived, how, how things change, how much life has changed. You know, Britain in the 6th century AD is drastically different from it had been anything in the Roman period. Around the Mediterranean, it's much more nuanced. And, you know, you can talk to archaeologists who've worked there, and they'll often say, well, you, you know, it's very difficult to see much, much difference when they're, they're digging on a site for when the Western Empire collapses. So it's, it's almost a sort of recap. I did the, the broader overview that ended with Justinian when I, I looked at the, the fall of the empire years ago. Um, so it'd be quite nice to go back and do a sort of more of a snapshot of just a few decades and try to say, well, what is the world like then? You know, what does it mean when you've still got this very vigorous Eastern Empire? Um, and culturally as well, of course, you know, what is going on? So, yeah, I think it, it'll be different. It'll certainly be a change from Alexander where the sources are so poor, because whilst obviously there's a bias towards church literature, there, there's a lot more. Um, and it's, it's a very different world. It's also, 
in one sense like Alexander and Philip, it's a world that generally speaking is is unfamiliar to the general audience. You know, we get countless books and documentaries on Rome at its height and the emperors, maybe on Caesar and the late Republic, maybe on Hannibal. And people who have an interest in history or the ancient history know a bit about it. Sixth century tends to be more of a niche thing. You know, there are the, the people with huge enthusiasm for that subject out there. But more generally, I don't think people know about it. So it's quite nice to bring to light something that, again, is less familiar and hopefully um, you know, lead people to think, actually, well, this is really interesting as well. So that's that's the aim anyway. But I haven't I've got to finish this novel first. And then I start the, the proper research for that over the summer. And then while I'm doing that, the, the pattern of the book will start to take a rather more precise shape. There's definitely lots to look forward to in your in your upcoming books. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Uh, happy to do it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of On History, the podcast of the Oxford University History Society. Remember to come back next week to hear from Linda Coley as she discusses her work on British, imperial and global history.